Malcolm Honline is Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. Joins us Friday mornings at uh, 7.40 a.m. Eastern Time for the weekly update. Mr. Honline, welcome back to JM in the AM. Thank you. It's good to have you back. Appreciate that. For the surgery of the week uh, <laughs> club here, but... Uh... <laughs> I'm willing that you'll get through this week without anything. <laughs> that's that's what it seems like. Yes, let's try to make a commitment that between today and next Friday, I'll have no news for you on that front. That would be that would be good, actually. That would be really, really good. Uh, Malcolm, tell me about the second wave in Israel. First of all, are they actually referring to it officially as a second wave of COVID nineteen in Israel? Uh, some people have. Uh, people are reluctant to do it because it has all sorts of implications, you know, in terms of tourism. As you know, the Europeans, for right. instance, you know, opened up but excluded countries where they didn't meet the certain standards. And Israel, unfortunately, now is one of them. And in some respects, it seems to be worse than the first round. Oh, gosh. And uh, the hospitals are being taxed. I spoke to people there yesterday. But, um, you know, Israel handles it well. People seem to be respecting it, wearing masks. For those who, who are skeptical and who, you know, always have an answer for me if we, when we raise the question of them wearing masks, just look at the situation there, and yeah. the, the there's no assurance. And even if you have antibodies, you have to protect other people from you. Yeah. So wearing a mask is not too much to ask people to do to help save lives. Uh, so in terms of practicality, obviously, if it is a second wave or not, but because of what Israel is going through, uh, obviously a delay now in, in people traveling to Israel, whatever dates we had in mind yep. in terms of planning trips. Obviously, that's either postponed or, or just has to be ignored for now because we have to see what happens. And uh, It's already it's already postponed, right. and uh, let alone El Al's internal problems and the strike that they have, and they fired many people and furloughed many and canceled both their uh, cargo and their uh, passenger flights for this week and for the foreseeable future until this is resolved. But they also need a government bailout. So their future, Elal's uh, future, is certainly in question. Other airlines announced that they're flying, but, you know, we'll have to see with the uh, increase now of the cases that some of them are cutting back as well. Yeah, the only comforting piece of news that seems that it'll only be a few more days till there is some type of news and uh, definitive resolution regarding Elal. Uh, but that's about the only good, <laughs> about the only good news in that regard, frankly. Um, all right, uh, look the the anniversary, the nineteenth anniversary of the weekly update is coming up. I think it's uh, two months from now, and obviously you've been on here even longer than that. But the official weekly update is about to turn nineteen. Uh, in those years, you have said some very insightful and interesting things about Vladimir Putin, uh, somebody who you've met, of course, and you you've. Uh, you have a, like I said, you have a lot to say about him in terms of what you think he really is like. With all that in mind, do you believe the Russia bounty case story? Look, I don't have uh, access to the intelligence. It doesn't seem anybody else did either. But the, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but, but uh, is it possible? Certainly. Do I think that China, Russia, others? are trying to get information like that, trying to influence on the Internet, trying to use social media uh, to undermine American democracy, elections, etc. And do I think that Western countries engage in some practices of that kind? Yes, I do believe all of that. Uh, you know, this is more complicated because it gets into the presidential election. Did he know what he didn't know? Um, 
that the that Putin is a very shrewd guy. Look, he, he's elected till now. I think he'll be able to serve till nineteen till twenty thirty six. I think that's a pretty big accomplishment uh, that he got an overwhelming majority, which he would have gotten no matter what. And he, um, uh, you know, he he has broad support. It seems in the country. The uh, so. He, he has very specific goals. We saw it this week with the meeting of the Astana group, uh, Iran, Turkey, and Russia, uh, about Syria. It was created to try and harmonize their efforts. Uh, but the, the groups themselves differ. Turkey wants to see Assad out. Russia and Iran want to see him in. They, they, they are in conflict with one another in Libya. They're fighting on opposite sides. Uh, but he's pragmatic. Wherever it serves his, serves his purpose, his hegemonic goals, his regional uh, footprint that he's trying to establish and successfully doing so, having bases now in Syria, having a presence in others, and something I found very disturbing but got almost no press for, for reasons that I can't even begin to fathom, that Egypt bought 500, oops, 500 tanks from uh, Russia. They already have a 1,000 M1 Abrams tanks that are made by the United States. Russia is setting up a factory there where they're going to manufacture them uh, and it'll create jobs, etc. But, but the very fact that they're turning to Russia for weapons is uh, of great concern. It has, obviously, political and other implications as well. And the, uh, if I were the U.S. government, I would be looking at that w with great concern. But it shows the success that that uh, Putin has had in extending his influence and and achieving the goals that he wants. Now, let's say it was true that there was a threat that, uh, or that, that there, in fact, there was a deal that he wanted to, uh, that he had arranged for um, uh, for terrorists to go ahead and kill uh, American soldiers. What seriously should have been there? You know, it's hard to tell these days with the media. You know, so many have this undying love for Trump, and so many in the media on the other side have this undying hatred for Trump. You know, it's hard to parse out what what a president objectively really should do in a situation like this. If it was true, and let's say for argument's sake the president knew about it, how would you expect him to react and do what? Well, there's two types of reactions. One is the overt, what you see, and then there's the covert, what you don't see. And, you know, there are a lot of accusations you know, of what the United States and other countries do right. because it's part of our national security profile. It's what people do. They spy on one another. All these countries, every one of them is spying and has spies. Uh, you know, there are arrests of spies. They don't even make, doesn't even make the news anymore unless it involves Israel uh, <laughs> and usually false accusations. But the, 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 this is something they do all the time and how they retaliate. You can have a public uh, response, but that may not necessarily really reflect a private response, which can be much more direct and uh, devastating. And you do agree that this is really going to continue to be the story, what he knew and whether he's being responsible with America's security or not. No, until till the next story comes along, then the, then the accusation, this one will go away, and the next one. If you think back over the last year, two years, how many of these stories, how many things like this have occurred? And for a moment, you know, there's the immediate rush, and then it goes away because the next thing has come up. And, you know, it's, does it have a cumulative effect? Maybe. But I think most people won't, don't remember the scandals of six months ago or accusations six months ago, some of which proved not to be true. Yeah, I hear that. Uh, over the last few weeks, I've asked you about the hesitation or the consideration that members, especially leaders in our community, must go through, must think about before getting involved 
in Black Lives Matter rallies, public statements, demonstrations, etc. Uh, I think I think you'd agree that it's you know one should tread very very carefully these days. There there are no clear cut best ways to approach these things publicly. In the past, there might have been there might have been efforts where it was obvious that you know members of our community and leaders in our community should play a role. But I think now you know it's really really a tenuous situation. Uh, with all that in mind. Um, should members and leaders in our community be very hesitant to get involved in the, uh, in the, um, cancel culture that we are seeing now in the statue controversy, et cetera, in this country? You've raised uh, a lot of important points. I think that, you know, when it comes to taking a moral stand, I think people have to do it. On the other hand, when we look, you have to be careful who you're making common cause with. And you look at the demonstrations that took place this week, and if you remember, I did speak about this two yep. weeks ago already. I warned that the that they would try to hijack it. We right. that we had evidence of it, and you saw that the BDS uh, boycott divestment movement uh, took advantage of this and tried to uh, what they call intersectionality. You you unite the two causes, and so we had the demonstration in Washington, which clearly was hostile and, and turned not only to being anti-Israel, also anti-Semitic, and other, in L.A. and other places as well. And it's only the beginning. Um, so when people make common cause and then they invite speakers and they do who are clearly hostile to us and give them credibility and, and visibility, we don't want to be associated with that. Uh, you know, we are a community that supports law and order, that requires law and order to function. We we depend on our public security. We don't have, you know, uh, vigilantes running around doing stuff. We, we, we want the police to be strong, and the community has demonstrated support for them. And when there are bad guys, they should be pointed out. And, you know, obviously what happened to Lloyd was, was uh, not justifiable by any circumstance. Right. But the, the, to dismantle police, to do other things of that kind, is also short-sighted and, and going to be counterproductive and in the long run. You can have economies, but I can think of plenty of places to begin those economies uh, here in New York or, and around the country. So we as a community um, are not monolithic. There are people involved in, in the events and from across the spectrum of the, of the community. But I think we have to be careful not to give credibility on when there are when a Farrakhan or somebody is is invited or others who who have the histories of, of anti-Jewish activities, then we should not be associated with it, and we should raise our voices in protest. That you can't look for rights if you're going to uh, also have people who who sanction the limitation of rights of others. And anti-Semitism is permeating too much of these activities. There has to be clear condemnation. And some black leaders, for instance, have condemned the anti-Semitism in, in, in some of the demonstrations. But we as a community have to, to be on alert. alert. This is, we have to look at the immediate and the longer-term consequences of what we do. And on the, I mean, on the statue issue specifically, there are certain Jewish leaders that have been outspoken. Um, and, and again, I think people just need to be wary. They need to be careful because even if the position that you're taking is correct, it is a position that's being encouraged by a uh, by a uh, wanton mob out there uh, who you know won't take no for an answer. In other words, what I'm saying is there may be legitimate discussion about statues and about you know how one looks as a nation at their history, etc. But when one is being forced by the mob to make changes, one has to be very careful how they do it. 
look, we, we put a lot of emphasis in our tradition on history. Right. History isn't always good. There are good people in history, bad people in history. You don't lionize the bad people, and I think there's, there's a healthy review that can be made for an honest assessment. But at the same time, this this I, I don't like the term cancel culture because it all of a sudden gives it some legitimacy right. as if this is a movement or some sort of a legitimate thought to, to erase history, to distort history. We have been subject to that all along, and especially when it comes to Israel. The, the distortions, misrepresentations, this this uh, denial of the history of, of the Jewish connection to Israel, all of those things, w- which is essentially would become under the category of cancel, of, uh, the, uh, cancel culture, um, highlights why this is a very dangerous thing to do, why it, it, it thoughtful examination is one thing. As you said, mob rule is another. Yeah, I just realized that, of course, you're right. You've been fighting this battle for decades on the Israel front. I mean, every week, right. there was a period of time where every single week you would bring to our attention what the enemy is trying to do in terms of eliminating our past and, and re not just eliminating the past, but rewriting history, <laughs> Take, taking our uh, landmarks important to us and making them important to their own religion and their own tradition. I heard it this week on BBC. They're doing this series on Israel, the complete misrepresentation of some of the events and of the, let's say, the refugee issue. There's a new book out by Anat Wilf and Adi Schwartz, which people should read, about the refugee issue, you know, the right of return, all right. related things. But, I mean, debunking the whole counter history that has been developed about what caused it, who, the, how many there were, what, what the real story is, in this vital issue, because it's a critical issue in any negotiations, the, 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 you see the rewriting history about the Palestinians' refusal to participate in uh, in negotiations, and even distorting what is being discussed uh, about uh, the application of sovereignty or the the banner of annexation. Uh, it sounds as if you know Israel's in the ground. And what they're saying is this is the lands that by consensus, would remain with Israel. They have to work out the roads, they have to work out boundaries, and all those things in the mapping process. But essentially, I'm not talking about Israel taking uh, more than that. And the um, so, the, but already it's become uh, a, such a, a campaign. Look at the members of Congress this week. How many have signed, even friends of Israel, have signed on to these warnings about the an opposition to any act of annexation, and you know it's a bad word. They should never have started with that word. Right. Um, but it, it's not changing anything on the ground. Will it be? There are those who can argue that it's an, in fact an enhancement to the chance of getting negotiations. That you get, start clarifying the issues, and you have a party that a partner that is not willing to be a partner and to to be a party to the talks, and this these the media and. Our elected officials, a uh, hundred and some Democratic members of the House and members of the Senate yesterday, um, again, some of them have always held, uh, let's say, less than warm positions, but the, but many of, in the House of Science were, were people who have traditionally been uh, supportive. And this issue has grown far beyond what I think the reality on the ground. You can debate it. There are people who are opposed to it. There are a lot of people in Israel on the left and on the right who are opposed to it. But at least the facts have to be right. It's America's one and only Jewish Moments in the Morning radio program. Heard on listener-sponsored digital radio around the world on the web at NachumSegal.com and the NachumSegal Network and, of course, the beloved NSN app. You know, you raised such an important point just now, which I, I have to follow up with. Um, 
you know, we're, we're worried about the makeup in Congress. Obviously, we saw the House primary elections in the last couple of weeks. Everyone's nervous about the way things are going, the direction it's going in terms of support of Israel and the people that we're losing that are members of Congress. But we do have to remember that even people who are pretty dedicated to our community are not always there with us on the issues when it comes to Israel. And they, they, very often they have to be convinced, etc. I think the difference is this, and you'll tell me if I'm right. I think the difference is that those who always started off, and again, whether they maintain that position or not, started off as not very warm, as you say, toward Israel. They were always willing to sit down and discuss. I know this from our local congresswoman here, who's not the greatest friend of Israel in terms of the way she votes and what she proposes, but has never rejected a meeting with Orthodox Jews or those who've been outspoken about Israel, has even changed her position on certain votes because of the conversations. And I think what's getting people nervous is that some of the people that are now becoming the progressive recent members of the United States House of Representatives, for instance, are not willing to speak to people in our community, are not willing to have that discussion or conversation. Would that be an accurate assessment? Yes, but it's it's a limited number. Some And people have to be very careful not to lump everybody together, even if, you know, they're disappointed in an outcome of a particular election. It turns out that... that that some of them are, in fact, very open, that the perception was that they would not be because right. they were running against others. Right. Um, there are some who I think are beyond uh, the region who have not shown any interest, uh, even those elected earlier and members of uh, certain cliques in Congress, uh, and who, with whom it probably doesn't pay to, to engage, but they're gaining influence, and uh, we shouldn't exaggerate it, but it, it is certainly a, a fact in becoming national figures, uh, people with no background, no real stands, but um, able to, to very cleverly, and I have to give them credit for the way they're manipulating the situation. Uh, so, number one, we should continue to make an effort to reach out to whoever got elected or is likely to be elected. We should, in advance, be in touch with candidates on both sides. Those who, who reject it, who don't want it, you know, that's that's what democracy is about. And you have a chance to answer by going to the polls. Right. If people would go to the polls, and no matter how many times we've said this over the last 25 years or so and pushed people to register to vote, if after this election they don't understand the significance and importance of doing so, and you don't get called for jury duty, you don't get drafted, nothing anymore, it's uh, completely independent of that uh, because everybody's in the pool right. no matter what if you have a driver's license or you pay an electric bill or a telephone bill uh, you're in the same pool no matter what so the the uh, underscoring that and getting people to put uh, voter registration sheets out for people who come to shuls who or have gatherings or they're their neighbors every block should have a, somebody a captain who makes sure that people turn out it's really imperative this is the one thing we have and I think that there are really good basis for concern today. I see it reflected in the Aliyah interest uh, increasing so sharply this year because people are looking at the situation in the country. But we can't give up on the billions of dollars of investment. We can't give up on um, the communities and leaving uh, people behind is not an answer. We've, We've learned that lesson from the past. And elected officials know who votes and who doesn't vote. When the mayor of New York, everybody's complaining about, got elected with 25% of the vote. Well, if the other 75% or half of them had gone out to vote, you'd have a different mayor maybe. Uh, So I put the onus on the people. We have right now such serious issues 
that getting virtually no attention, and I'm glad we still have the opportunity to talk about, I mean, how many people today talk about Iran? But we saw this week explosions in Iran in, in at least three places. Yeah, who's responsible we, for those? Not me. That I can tell you. I was not there. But uh, we don't know yet who's responsible. There is one group in Iran that is an opposite, quote, opposition group that claims the responsibility for the last one in Natanz. Uh, but remember, these are all at nuclear sites. And the the one in near Parchin, which was a huge fireball that went up, the same in Natanz, which was felt quite strongly. Um, you know, there's a limit to how many work accidents can take place. There's also a, a big building, it's a 30-story building or something, uh, a big building, and 33 people were killed uh, in a fire. We don't know if they're related because obviously they don't give out the the information. But um, you saw that they issued a, a warrant for the arrest of President Trump and yeah. 30 yeah. other people, which of course was rejected. But they, they, they uh, and the leader of Hamas was in touch with the head of the parliament, and they're working against Israel. Supposedly, it was to express condolences over Soleimani's death so many months ago. So that clearly isn't true. But the Iran uh, is continuing its its activities, its hegemonic goals. Turkey has become much more radical in a lot of its outreach. We see them from Libya to Yemen to Iraq to Iran. In fact, the best news this week was in Iraq, of all places, where. They arrested a, a group, an Iranian militia group, that was responsible for the attacks on the U.S. They've released most of them, but they, they've kept some. They, they are now demanding visas from Iranian officials, and including the head of the Iran Revolutionary Guard, couldn't get into Iraq until he got the forms to do so. And he came without any money this time, and he said to the Iranian militias, you've got to get the money from the Iraqi government. And the... Um, I mean, there's much more about what's going on with Iraq. Again, we don't have time to go into each of these things in detail. But I, my point is that so much is happening right now, so much in that you you, you see in Syria um, with the Turkey imposing its currency on northern Syria now. You can't use Syrian uh, currency to buy gas and bread and other things because they're trying to uh, establish their control there. And the... Um, the efforts of uh, obviously Russia is in a catbird seat right now, and right now there haven't been responses to the Israeli raids in Syria, which were quite devastating uh, the week before this when you were away. Um, and the, the the number of incidents that are taking place and the increasing aggressiveness, and for some the perception that the U.S. is pulling out, for others uh, it's to get U.S. out. That's what the Russians. Iranians and the Turks have in common. They hate each other and fight each other, but the common goal in Syria is to get the U.S. out and to, to force them out. It's one of the reasons why Iraq, in Iraq, Iran might be tolerating it, because they say if there's a drop in these activities, then the U.S., the pressure will build to get the U.S. troops out, and then they will have free reign. So they have the, the long-term uh, vision about these things. Um, I agree with everything you said. I just want to make one final point when it comes to being re uh, represented in the United States Congress, and that is that often we forget that, you know, we, we're lamenting. A lot of people are lamenting that some of the losses recently in terms of congressional leadership are members of the Jewish community. We forget sometimes some of the greatest friends for Israel in the United States Congress have been not of Jewish background. Uh, and, and some who are Jewish. I mean, look, uh, Elliot Engel was in a key position. 
and the reasons for his losses can be analyzed and determined. And he, he, but he, he was the chairman of the Foreign Affairs Committee. That is a very powerful position. Now, it looks like Greg Meeks has a very good shot, at, or Brad Sherman, uh, who's the ranking member, would be in line. But it looks like they may bypass him and, and go to Greg Meeks from uh, Farakaway, from Queens. Um, and so people should be uh, should look at this very carefully and and the relationships we have with all of these people that some may not not believe were important but as we turn out nobody knows anymore how this process works and the who who will be in the keeper positions uh, Hakim Jeffries is is in line to be uh, is number 3 and is in line to be certainly the first black speaker uh, if not immediately then in time and those who have worked hard, and he's, you know, he is a friend. He doesn't necessarily march in lockstep uh, all the time, but he has certainly been a friend and supportive and a, an important voice for us. Right, that, that, and that's my point. My point is that the bigger story is not the members who are Jewish that we're losing. It's members who will be and continue to maintain conversation and discussion with the pro-Israel community. And everybody now has an opportunity to begin those discussions with those new members. If you, at, at least, I mean, you'd agree, even with the ones who seem the most radical and whom the media, you know, are promoting with a completely different agenda, you would still encourage people to reach out to them and try hard to at least find common ground on something. That's try harder, in fact, yeah, and exactly. to invite them. I mean, we can't have meetings in schools, but uh, once that opportunity comes together or small gatherings are possible outdoors with the members of Congress, people should do it. We have to maintain the relationships. We have to, you know, have a broader vision. Uh, that doesn't mean we excuse those who, who vote the wrong way or who do harmful things or say harmful things. Everybody should be held to account. And I think what they're doing with Facebook is important in terms of getting rid of the, the hate and the <clears throat> way that um, some of the different sites, the carriers, allow anti-Semitic stuff to go on. Our voices have to be heard. We have to fight these things because it's poisoning a generation. And elected officials become vulnerable to these things, too. They don't have necessarily strong backgrounds in, the, in international affairs. And so they become vulnerable. When the, uh, and we have to make sure to try to educate and to, to bring information and to fight the, the growth of anti-Semitism on the Internet and to reject it when it infiltrates you know what is basically supposed to be a movement to, for justice. Hundred uh, percent. Speaking of Congress, do you agree that there should be a congressional review of foreign arms sales from the White House? I mean, if, if, I don't know if it's a cover for just going after Israel. It's one thing. If it's about all arms sales, but it has to be about a lot of other things too. You know, the <clears throat> members of Congress now. I think there are five cases that were brought by members of Congress. Uh, coincidentally, all Republicans, uh, to Secretary DeVos of the Department of Education about Title VI uh, monies that, that the United States government allocates, and they have brought cases, and the last one is about um, Yale, I think, uh, but I know it's Georgetown and University of North, uh, uh, in uh, about Duke, because they're saying that they're, they've taken foreign money, their um, faculty is promoting BDS, and why is our government money going to help promote these kind of biased uh, institutions, which are are poisoning the minds of the next generation? And you see 
even young Jews who fall vulnerable to it when they get to a campus and they haven't been challenged before about some of the issues, and all of a sudden somebody tells them authoritatively, you know, things about Israel which are, in fact, not true. So, yes, we have to hold to account on all the issues on the, uh, when it comes to arms sales. I have no problem with reviewing it because they will find out how much the United States gains from our uh, military and assistance. We don't get Israel doesn't get any aid for or very little aid for um, uh, non-military, non-defense related issues. Right. Uh, there is some, and and you saw that there were some enhancements in terms of the military, the joint. Um, uh, missile program, and you know that that Israel's providing two Iron Dome batteries that have come to the United States to be at White Sands to be tested there, to be incorporated in the defense of our borders, and the next batch of F-35s is due to arrive in Israel in the next uh, weeks, and another one, I think, in October and and December. By the end of the year, there will be more than half of the 51 that Israel ordered, and they are playing a key role in Israel's ability to defend itself in Syria and elsewhere because of the capabilities of the F-35. Yeah, by the way, I I think you're you're at the same time making another important point. Don't assume that if there's a change of leadership in Washington in November... Don't assume that Israel all of a sudden has no financial aid or military support from the United States, right? Wouldn't you, wouldn't you agree with that? A lot of people are just, are are touting that. No, well, the bill is coming up now. This it's before the president, so the uh, renewal of this. But but what we have seen is this: what I warned about before, this movement to. Um, there are some, like uh, even Warren and Sanders have joined AOC and others in saying that we should cut the aid to Israel if they go ahead with annexation, or to the degree that any money f- funds cannot be used from the United States in uh, in the West Bank, and then that will just keep expanding. So it's there's no guarantees of what will be, uh, but the, the aid to Israel still enjoys the support of the vast majority of Democrats and Republicans. And uh, the President Trump obviously rejects the connection, and Joe Biden rejected the conditionality of it, conditioning aid, right. uh, military and security aid to Israel. Um, okay. Uh, by the way, we talked about COVID earlier. Uh, we should remember as a community the history we've had because, and I know that in some cases you could say there has been some scapegoating, but mild compared to what Jews have been used to over the centuries. If you see what's going on now in Yemen, where the Africans are being scapegoated for the COVID-19 epidemic that's going on there. Uh, we, we should remember in the context of history, you know, what has happened to our people when it comes to, to things like this, and, and it's still happening today. So I, I say that because I think, uh, number one, with Israel being shut down to us, we can't go there. I think, you know, people forget that, you know, in situations like this, where there's nowhere to go to, that's where it, things have gotten really difficult for members of the Jewish community over the last couple of thousand years worldwide. And, and this same attitude still prevails. The same attitude still exists. Again, if you look at the Yemen example, just thank God right now it's not our community that's being subject to it. Well, in Yemen, it's true. That is true. And we see the Baha'i in Iran, for instance, being persecuted. They arrested 77 members, and we should be speaking out for them as well. But uh, the fact is that in Europe and in many parts of the United States, significant percentage of the population do blame and have been poisoned by some of the propaganda online and elsewhere, uh, tying Israel 
to the um, and and certainly injecting anti-Semitism uh, in the uh, COVID discussion and debate, and and more importantly in some of the other manifestations. Even yesterday, the demonstration in the Hamptons, they they picked four places to go and demonstrate. All four happened to be Jewish. I mean, is that a coincidence? No. And the and the uh, some of the expressions that we've seen on this are blatantly anti-Semitic. And the, so COVID, the, the connection to COVID, which is coming out of the PA, out of Iran, out of other places, uh, where they're deliberately using this to try and shift the onus onto Israel and Jews. Yeah, that's okay. I'm not, now I'm glad I brought it up because you certainly set me straight on that, and it's something really important for everybody to keep in mind. Two other things. Uh, on this annexation, I mean, you discussed it a, a few minutes ago. Uh, excuse the term, but I'm doing that for the convenience of people understanding the issue we're discussing. Um, it, it, so first of all, it, it looks like there's a delay, right? We kept talking about July 1st, so there's some type of delay. We don't know exactly what we're going to hear from Israel and when. But the world reaction, unless I have forgotten, I don't think the embassy got the type of reaction this is getting. I don't think the Golan announcement got the type of reaction this is getting. Even Boris Johnson and others that I think we've considered friends are going out of the way to talk about how against the annexation they are. Is that just because of the environment we're in right now with so many people taking on Israel, or this is just a much bigger issue when it comes to the way foreign leaders perceive it? I think it's been built into a bigger issue, and uh, you remember the deal has Trump's name on it, so all those who are against Trump jump on this immediately. Uh, Second, it's uh, open season. Uh, the, The July 1st deadline, first of all, was not a deadline. It was... It, according to the coalition agreement, enabled it was from that day on that it enabled Prime Minister either to Knesset or to the government to pass some sort of a plan. Right. And we've urged them, and we should not use that word. It is an application of sovereignty. There are many other terms. The annexation has already a harsh uh, interpretation to most people. And what Israel is doing, as I said before, you have to look at what the realities are on the ground. Mm-hmm. It's a complicated uh, deal to make. And that's why I think the mapping process has been complicated. And, of course, it gets caught then in domestic politics in the United States. Uh, and it has to be done intelligently. This is not something you ram down. It, 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 it could have been handled differently, I think, in the uh, build-up months. But, um, but you know, people are going to oppose it no matter what, and especially because it's Netanyahu and Trump or some things that they, they, uh, this is a chance to strike out. It is not what people think it to be, and I think having the extra time and people to be thoughtful about it, and um, you see the Palestinians now offering to negotiate, but if Israel apologizes on one hand and uh, other conditions that they've set, let's see if they'll come to the table now and if they'll they'll really uh, take seriously. I mean, the, the onus should be on them because they're the ones who are preventing negotiations and preventing meaningful talks to take place. So this becomes an incentive for them, actually, to, to come to the table and to clarify some issues. Obviously, it's contentious, and there are many in the Jewish community who don't support it, and there are many uh, military people in Israel who have raised questions about, uh, about it. But we should remember and put it in context, and people should study the issues, know what really is entailed. And obviously, Netanyahu now, the focus is on COVID. They have other issues, and they are trying to be sensitive to their friends in the UAE and the Gulf countries. At the same time, can't let other interests dictate what what will happen. And, uh, of course, facing a deadline in November, they want to do things while they know that President Trump is there. If 
he gets reelected, they'll have more time. But the concern, obviously, is that nobody can predict what's going to be. Finally, Malcolm, tomorrow, the 44th anniversary of the rescue at Entebbe. Everyone out there should make sure their children and grandchildren know what happened at Entebbe on July the 4th, 1976. And the, uh, uh, the message, again, even though Israel is now closed to us, if the necessity arises, we know that Israel will certainly come for us. And I think that's something important to keep in mind. And we know that the tremendous increase in the number of uh, people interested in making Aliyah, because I think that too often we take for granted and not being able to go to visit Israel makes us perhaps appreciate more what we yeah. didn't, don't think about twice anymore, our, our parents and grandparents, let alone, uh, but even our parents in the early years. If a trip to Israel was something you planned for years, and it was something that they valued and was so exciting. And today, young people go for, for years, and the, 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 everybody goes for holidays and other things. And it's almost something we've taken for granted. Maybe this will make us appreciate it more. Take a look at some of the amazing discoveries at the City of David, at the tunnels. Just amazing things, that all of which go back to Tanakh. There's, there was a coin which, and stuff that they found from the time of Ezra and Nehemiah the, the, just this past weeks that we not take for granted um, Israel. And what Israel is doing to help Jews around the world is is still an amazing uh, story that goes on, and and the, their interventions, the help they do, given all of the tremendous pressures that they have around the country, and because not a hot war doesn't mean that there isn't an ongoing conflict uh, with uh, the Hezbollah, with Lebanon, with Syria, with uh, Gaza. Thank God Israel is in a strong position, and will be able to handle, I think, uh, the, the circumstances. But we should not take any of this. For granted, they have formidable foes in Iran and Turkey, and the the um, too many allies around the world who are ready to jump on the bandwagon still against the uh, Jews and against Israel. So, number one, we need Achtos in our community. We need to be united, especially come to the three weeks to be reminded that this is essential and uh, and the most basic requirement of all of us. And second is that we get involved that you can't take things for granted. If you care about your kids and your grandchildren here or in Israel, wherever you see your future, only by our involvement and intelligent involvement and not knee-jerk reactions and not saying extremist things and not thinking that, you know, we're going to win people over by being uh, more uh, extreme in our positions, but think about how does the person you're trying to convince get affected. And that means reaching out to elected officials, to opinion molders, and to the people. Well said. Thank you, Mr. Honline. Have a wonderful Shabbos. We'll speak again next week. There he is, Malcolm Honline, Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations, Friday, 7.40 a.m. Eastern Time here at JM the AM. If this type of programming is of value to you, please support our Spring 2020 fundraiser, fjbunity.org.